Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. <laughs> Gone with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. And again, use a name I'd never heard of. Donna Dameron? Dameron? Yeah. Dameron. Nobody's ever heard of her. Right. You're not, right. You're not alone on that. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns, and I'm sorry Tammy is not with us today. If you're a listener to the show, that means we've got a guest. Today, it's Professor Emeritus Hank Davis, who will talk to us about his new book, DuckTales, Drive-Ins, and Broken Hearts, An Unsweetened Look at 50s Music. It's a great book written in nice, bite-sized chunks that explain many of the unsung heroes of the time, also a few that were quite popular. If you're a music fan or know someone who is, this would be a great gift. So, for an hour today, Professor Hank Davis on Rock School. On the phone with me is the author Hank Davis. His new book, DuckTales, Drive-Ins, and Broken Hearts, an unsweetened look at the 50s music. Hank, thanks for speaking with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Joe. Oh, absolutely. This was an excellent book. I read it in two settings. And uh, you're a a professor. You're a professor emeritus, which means you gave up and had enough of the kids. Am I right about that? (laughs) I actually miss the kids. I had had as much of the administrative side (laughs) as I could stand. But it wasn't the kids I gave up on. I uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that statement, young man. <laughs> so so look, you're up in Canada. I have to ask about it. What's the matter with you? Why are you guys on fire? Oh dear. Uh, I think it's just a glimpse of the future. I think it's just you know one sidelight of climate change. But yeah. unlike fifties music, it's not a topic I'm an expert in. That's true, and i got to be honest with you, I can read. I'm a professor as well, so at least we have a, a touch of kindred spirit. But I can read inside of your, your words that this is not an academic book you did for tenure. This is a book of what you love. None of the chapters are more than maybe six pages and I found that to be magnificently refreshing. You told your story, you moved along. Is that, do I generally have your writing process? Absolutely right. There's 38 chapters in the book and uh, each one is is self-contained. And uh, you know, it's funny, I hear from different reviewers and one of the themes that I hear is that some people say, I tried to ration it out. I wouldn't read more than one or two a day because <laughs> I didn't, you know, I didn't want to finish the book that quickly. But other people say, um, 
it was binge-worthy. I read a couple of chapters and then I couldn't put it down and I looked up and I was a hundred pages into it and I thought, oh my God, I can't, you know, I can't do this. I'm going to be, I'll, I'll have finished it in two or three days. I don't want to do that. So it's it's good. It's, um, it, it is, somebody described it as a bathroom book. It's a, it's a wonderful <laughs> bathroom book, unless you have dysentery, I guess. Well, well, you just have to read more little chapters. Now, I'm going to yeah. argue with you over the word unsweetened. I have no... I get ducktails, I get drive-ins, I get broken hearts. The word unsweetened makes no sense to me. Can you, can you square that? Sure. Uh, one of the main storylines about 50s music is that after a while the uh, the very straight people you know whether they were parents or teachers or church leaders people got scared about uh, singers like elvis and little richard and you know some uh, jerry lee lewis they thought these these kind of performers were going to destroy civilized culture they were going to turn all the kids into juvenile delinquents and you can even see that in some of the uh, 50s um, music movies. And usually it's the squares versus the kids. So they were really afraid of what 50s music was becoming. And they decided at some point, and this is in the late 50s, that it had to be sweetened. And sweetened meant that you had to put strings as in violins on the record you had to put vocal choruses behind the singers so they had to turn that wild early rock and roll into palatable unscary uh stuff by the end of the uh the decade and this is what gave rise to the whole genre of what are called bobbies bobby's records you know bobby vinton bobby v bobby this bobby that you know mm -hmm. and, and they're sweet photogenic um uh non-scary singers and um i wanted to make i borrowed that phrase unsweetened because i wanted to make it clear that this book was not a bunch of sweetened stories. This was the real thing. We were right. really looking at what happened and what didn't happen, and um, you know, without any fear of offending people or having to sweeten stuff. Look, you didn't offend me, and I, I, I like when music is raw. I understood what you meant about the, the, the Bobby's music and such, but let's get to that idea that somebody decided that music needed to be raw. You seem to hand a lot of respect to Sun Records and specifically Sam Phillips. You also talk about Sam Phillips' son, who uh, I've had dinner with at least three, four times. I worked at a radio station that he, uh, well, his father ran it at the time, and I'm sure he does now. But can you sort of, because he's all the way through the book, 
Can you condense Sun Records and the impact that Sam had on this new thing called rock and roll? I don't think I could overstate the impact that Sam Phillips and Sun Records had on popular culture, really. I mean, it it obviously starts with Elvis. And and just, I, I wanted to just make a, an aside about what we were just talking about. In kind of a sad way, I think the worst of all the Bobbies, the Sweden singers, was Elvis himself. And what? people don't like to hear that, especially, you know, uncritical Elvis fans. But just think, in 1955, when Elvis was recording for Sun Records, he cut a, a song called Baby Let's Play House. Wonderful, early, tense, um, just, you know, the start of rockabilly. And you listen to what Elvis sounded like on that record with just a bass and a drum behind him. And within two years... He was recording songs like Teddy Bear, Let Me Be Your Teddy Bear, <laughs> which is about as Bobby-ish as you can get. And so he is, he is a perfect example of what was happening to early rock music and the fear that really transcended, over, you know, just the, it sat on top of the producers, the record companies, the artists themselves, and these people didn't want to be out of a job, so they they really kowtowed to the social pressure and sweeten things. I think you but, have to trademark. I'm sorry, I, I didn't really answer your no, question. No, no, no. I'm going to get back Sam to it. Phillips, though. You know, I'm going to get back um, to it. But you've got to trademark that idea, the Bobby's music. I'd never heard it before your book, and it 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 as calmly and quickly as possible lays out what you're talking about. Only the Pat Boone music could have probably been more blatantly obvious, but get back to Sam Phillips. Sam Phillips had a vision. He really wanted to give um, downtrodden people an opportunity to express themselves. And that's exactly what he did. He back around 1952, 1953, and this is before there was a Sun Records, Sam opened his door, the Memphis Recording Service, and he had people come in there who uh, had all kinds of creative um, juice in them, and, and um, they didn't have an opportunity to record in Memphis, you know, we think today of Memphis as being a, a hub of, of recording of soul music, but back then, it uh, the major labels were really avoiding. Uh, they were they weren't taking the time to um, to record artists in Memphis. So Sam got um, people who would never otherwise have had a chance. He got R and B artists like uh, Howlin' Wolf and BB King and Roscoe Gordon. And they all came by his little storefront studio and made their earliest records. They may not be the cleanest, most technically perfect records they ever recorded, but my God, they had feeling in them. And Sam did the same thing uh, with white artists. He dealt with the underclass. He gave people like Elvis 
you know, a, uh, a kid who lived in the projects in Memphis, a truck driver for Crown Electric. He gave him a chance to express himself. He gave artists like Charlie Feathers. That's another one. Charlie is, uh, you have to be a, either a, a deep rockabilly fan or maybe a Memphis music fan. But, you know, these were guys who were not going to get a chance if uh, Sam had not listened to them. Johnny Cash is another one. Carl Perkins is another one. So Sam really opened the doors because the major labels were not going to touch these guys. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show. Free to get ready now, go cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. You can do anything but get off of my blue suede shoes. It's you, baby. I'm going to throw you a curveball against Elvis because I have three questions against that Elvis. And by the way, I agree with you. You mentioned Carl Perkins. I have a question that I ask friends of mine who are real musicologists. So I'll ask you, had Carl Perkins not had his horrible car crash, would he have been Elvis Presley? Not a chance. No, really? Why? There are two ways to evaluate these guys. One of them is in terms of musical skills. Elvis was a terrific singer. Carl was a a really good singer, too. Maybe a little more inclined to hillbilly music. Carl was a spectacular guitar player. He was the lead guitar player in his band. When Carl screamed out uh, after a verse, oh, get going, boy, when he said that, he was the boy who got going. He took, <laughs> he took the solo right then and there. All Elvis could do was uh, turn and look to his left where Scotty Moore was, yeah. and Scotty took the electric guitar solo. Oh, so at a strictly musical level, oh, and the other thing is that Carl wrote songs. Carl wrote blue suede shoes he was a really good songwriter elvis wasn't elvis brought all kinds of new dimension to previously recorded songs but he didn't create new ones so at a music level carl was the absolute winner but it stops it stops there because in terms of performance elvis just projected raw sexual energy he was beautiful. He was scary. He was, you know, all the guys wanted to be him and all the girls wanted to be with him. Carl Perkins, a middle-aged, balding guy with a wife and two kids. Well, I got to tell you, though, when you, you look at guitarists of today, and I have a lot of students, I'm a professor as well, and they talk about the shredding of today, and I say to them, you got to go listen to Carl Perkins. you got to listen to Scotty Moore. you got to listen to, I can't remember his name, but the guy who played for Bill Haley. These were phenomenal musicians at the time. And what was the other one in your book? Les Paul. How High the oh, Moon. Yeah. Goodness. 
The playing was ridiculous. We need to take our first break and give our affiliates time to play their commercials. We'll be back in a minute to continue speaking with Hank Davis about his book, DuckTales, Drive-Ins and Broken Hearts, an unsweetened look at 50s music on Rock School. I know who Elvis is. I know who a lot of the people in your book were. Where this book, to me at least, took off was when you talked about somebody that had grand influence, if you will. Not a lot of success, but grand influence. And what I found myself doing was reading the book, sitting in front of YouTube, pulling up songs from these people and I've I've got a series of questions about people that made me go why don't I know more about these people explain to me who Laverne Baker is because she's great Laverne Baker was a major major R&B artist in the early to mid 50s and uh, she was an absolutely terrific singer and uh, a dynamite performer, and she had records on the R&B chart. She was a superstar. In fact, I read recently that she had, I think she had rivaled um, Chuck Berry and uh, maybe, maybe Little Richard for the number of hits in that era. But her, the problem with her is that she became the... Um, cover girl for what were called cover records. Her records would come out and they wouldn't get played on mainstream white radio stations. So most other labels came out with cover versions by white artists. Same arrangement often, same musicians in some cases, but a white, you know, a white chick singing instead of a black chick. And, um, and their records often outsold hers. And she was not very happy about that. No kidding. She, she, very <laughs> outspoken woman, you know, just gloriously outspoken. And, and I think I said in, in the book that Netflix or somebody ought to do a bio picture about Laverne Baker. Yeah. Just, a, you know, a strong woman who tried to seek social justice in the music business, in the record business, and had limited success. She looks a lot more successful through the lens of today's point of view than uh, back in the, in the 50s. But uh, she, she probably was victimized more than any other artist by so-called cover records. Now, you, you came from uh, the world of, weren't you a psychology professor? Do I have that correctly? That's right. That's right. Explain to me, you call them cover records. I've heard them referred to as race records, meaning it's an African-American person singing it. And because of this silly BMI ASCAP thing and just flat out racism... What they would do is go find some squeaky clean, quote, white artist to cover it. 
what was the point of this? Because there was black-owned record uh, labels like OK and such. Why, why the covering? Why not just leave the records alone and create more? That's what I've always never understood about this silly thing. Well, I think, first of all, seeing this exclusively as a, a racist thing really isn't the most useful way to, to look at it. I think you have to take a step back and realize that back in the 50s, the music, the record business was very, very different. What was a hit was a song, not a record, but a song. So if some song became a hit um, by a particular artist, almost every major label came out with their version of it by one of the artists they had under contract. So if an artist, let's say a, a black artist came out with a hit record and uh, people at a different label thought, you know, that's a good song. We're going to cover that. We'd like to uh, take advantage of how good that song is and come out with our own version. And the thing is that we tend to think of it just as whites covering blacks. But that's a tiny piece of the puzzle. There were, there were artists, there were many examples of white artists covering white artists. There were black artists covering uh, black artists. There were black singers who covered white singers, and there were white singers who covered black singers. But today, it's only that last group that we tend to think about, the white folks covering the music of black folks. And the picture is so much bigger. You know, like, we don't, nobody seems to get all upset about the fact that Tony Bennett recorded some Hank Williams songs. Hank Williams was a white hillbilly artist and songwriter. Rosemary Clooney recorded Hank Williams songs. So did Joni James. So did Frankie Lane. And so, for that matter, did Dinah Washington, who was a, a black R&B singer. So I think the, basically the message is just people cover records were a fact of life in the 50s record business. And if there was money to be made then somebody was going to step up and try to make it. And, you know, there's reality to this, Joe, because when you think about it, Hank Williams had a version of Your Cheating Heart. He had a version of Cold, Cold Heart. He had his version of um, oh, Half As Much. These were all songs that he recorded, and they were huge country hits. Would they have been played, would those records have been played on mainstream, pop, urban radio stations? Not a prayer. So the best thing that could have happened to Hank Williams and his publisher was for an artist like Tony Bennett or Rosemary Clooney or Frankie Lane or Joni James to cover his records. Now, nobody seems to get all bent out of shape when an urban white singer covers 
a record by a rural white singer, but, you know, where race is involved, people tend to change the narrative a little bit. And I think, I think they lose the big picture when they do that. I, I've never heard it explained in those terms. It has always been straightforward, Little Richard, Pat Boone, whitewashing. You see, now I got to look into this. You've, you've piqued the, uh, the academic in me. <laughs> well, you know, while you're thinking about it, think about the fact that Fats Domino recorded um, all kinds of country songs, white country songs. So did Louis Armstrong. He recorded Cold, Cold Heart, which is uh, a Hank Williams song. He recorded My Bucket's Got a Hole in It, which is a Hank Williams song. And maybe the, the best known reversal of, to all of us is when Ray Charles came out with his album Modern Sounds in Country and Western. That was 1962. Ray Charles, a premier black artist who had owned the R&B charts for years, covered a dozen white country songs. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I've did. never heard, maybe I've missed it, but I've never heard a narrative that talked about how um, white culture was appropriated by a black artist and what, what a crime that was. Huh. My point is that everybody did it to everybody. It was fair game. It was the way the industry worked. And did it have a, an understory? Sure. And it was economic. I'm not sure it was, it was strictly racial. I tried so hard, my dear, to show that you're my every dream. Yet you doubtful mind and melt your cold, cold heart. There was, cover isn't the correct word, you call it an answer record. Now, obviously not a cover, but you show the answer record and again use a name I'd never heard of. Donna Dameron? Dameron? Yeah. Dameron. Nobody's ever heard of her. Right. You're not right. you're not alone on that. <laughs> but but that was that was an answer record. She she recorded, you know, after um after somebody has a hit record with a particular song and in the Donna Dameron case, the hit record was The Big Bopper and Chantilly Mace. And she decided to record literally an answer record from the point of view of the girl that he is calling up on the phone. So that's a slightly different song. And he's, um, you know, the artist is, is literally answering the, uh, the message sent in the original hit. A cover record is where the same song is recorded in an attempt to take away sales or, or radio plays from the original version. 
So they are different things. Let me get to yet another name that, and this was early in the book, but you stated uh, another name and you referred to her as either the mother of rock and roll or one of the mothers of rock and roll. Her uh, being... Ella May. Right, Ella May Morse. Who in the world is that? Well, it's, it's amazing in a sense that anybody would ask that question. But of course, from today's point of view, it's, it's completely natural. Ella May Morse was a superstar in the 1940s. She was in six Hollywood mo movies performing. She was making records when she was 13 years old. She grew up in Texas. Um, you could not tell from hearing her versions on the radio, from hearing her records, if she was white or black. And she wasn't imitating anybody. She just grew up singing like that. And she was completely colorblind in her life. She worked with black musicians, white musicians. She just made good music. And she was also beautiful, which is part of why she was in a half a dozen movies. And in the 50s, she had a couple of uh, serious hit records. Um, probably the biggest one was called Blacksmith Blues. And that was a number one hit record I can't remember the year, maybe 1952 or something. And, um, you know, she was, she was a star. And she just got to a point where she quit the business at age 32, I believe, which is really sad because she was a terrific lady and a, a just so talented. It it's almost it defies the imagination. <laughs> Time for the second break, but stay tuned for more with Hank Davis about his book, DuckTales, Drive-Ins and Broken Hearts, an unsweetened look at 50s music on Rock School. You, we, we, we had a, a discussion previous to this uh, back and forth that we're doing right now. And one of the things you asked for me to ask you, and I'm just going to tell the audience of it because it's nice and deep, talk to me about Unchained Melody, literally the most played record on the radio, bar none. What do you know of it? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about the... The plays, what it was is, well, maybe that's true. Maybe it is the, the, it got the BMI award or the ASCAP award for most played songs. You bet. But it's also incredibly, the, the number of versions, uh, this whole thing started for me about maybe 10 years ago when a record company I worked for 
called Bear Family Records. They're in Germany. Um, the owner called me up and he said, I have an idea for a CD. What do you think of this? We'll just collect all the versions of Unchained Melody we can find. And my first response was to say, do you think we'll have enough to fill up a CD? <laughs> and that laugh is the appropriate response. Yeah. You know, it really is. We could have filled up not a 30-track CD and not even a box set of four CDs. We, I'm not sure there is a product out there that could hold all the versions of Unchained Melody that have been recorded in different languages, by the way. There's, at this point, the last estimate I saw was maybe about 1,500. That's a lot of recordings of one particular song. Yeah, it's, and, and the thing is, you hear it all the time, and I, I hate to quote, you know, American Idol, but... Simon Cowell has said, and he's right, I've heard Rick Beato say the same thing, it may be one of the most difficult lines to sing. It's odd intervals and such, and it's, if you can do it, you basically prove yourself to be a decent singer. Well, it's funny, when I hear you say that, the first song that comes to mind as the most difficult song I believe that has ever been written, the most difficult song to perform, is the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's a German drinking song, isn't it? Because <laughs> I love baseball, and I, go, I try to go to a lot of games, I... Um, I get a big kick out of watching some, I don't know, local kid or local performer come out and sing the national anthem before the game. And, oh, my God, it, I mean, it's cringeworthy sometimes. <laughs> it's just a tough song to sing. But it anyway, but getting back to Unseen Melody, I... Not sure I agree with you about how difficult it is. All right. The, the thing is, in its original version, and by the way, it some people might think, how is that? How does Unchained Melody deserve a chapter in a book about fifties music? It's not a fifties song, and the answer is yes, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> most people only know or know about it because it was such a, uh, a a dominant part of the movie Ghost, which is, of course, 1990. Right. So they associate the song with that movie. But that's not where it started. And then they sometimes say, no, that was a hit for the Righteous Brothers back in 1965. And that's true also, but that's not where it started. Mm -hmm. It was a major hit song, a major hit record in 1955. So it's absolutely legit. It belongs in, it belongs in my book. Um, and it's a good example, by the way, of cover records, because there were three hit versions at the time. 
There was a version by Roy Hamilton. There was a version by Al Hibbler. And there was a version by the Les Baxter Orchestra and Chorus. And they were hits at exactly the same time. And there was, again, no racial element to it. It was just three different record companies trying to make as much money off this hit song as they could. And um, the, the, song, the story behind the song is, is really fascinating. It, it truly does deserve a, its own chapter because the song was nominated for an Academy Award and people think, yeah, well, it deserves it. Well, it didn't deserve it in the movie, from the movie version. It, it comes from a movie called Unchained, which is why it's called Unchained Melody. If you watch that terrible old um, B movie from 1954, you'll see that its original title was Lonely River. <laughs> That's the way it's referred to in the closing credits to the movie. I didn't know Not that. Not even Lonely Rivers, when you think about the release, Lonely Rivers flow to the sea, to the sea. So it was called Lonely River. Now, try to imagine, you know, uh, here are the Righteous Brothers with their version of Lonely River. No, nobody would get that. Yeah, titles matter. I, I, the more I teach... Uh, uh, writing and journalism and podcasting and public speaking, titles matter. Uh, Unchained Melody is just, and I don't know why, there's some ethereal thing to it. Unchained Melody is better than Lonely River. Why? I don't know. It just and is. It, it, you know, you, you might be right, but it was originally given that title, not because somebody thought it was a terrific title, or it flowed better or something, no, no pun intended, but because it was, a, it was basically a marker. When the song was nominated for the Academy Award, they needed a quick handle on the title so they could refer to it. And they knew it was the song that had appeared in a movie called Unchained. So somebody maybe in the nominating committee uh, from the uh, Grammys said, well, just, you know, Unchained Melody. Okay, let's just call it after the movie. And they didn't bother to change it. It stuck. And, by the way, it lost. It was not... It didn't win an Academy Award for Best uh, Movie Theme. Huh. Uh, the, the winner that year, if I remember correctly, was Love is a Many Splendored Thing. Well, yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's... It was a big hit record, but... Um, some 50, 60, or 70 years later, nobody is walking around singing Love is a Many Splendored Thing, whereas right now, as you and I talking are talking, there are probably dozens of people all over the world who are singing on Chain Melody. Yeah. So that's the winner. Do you know if the original guy, the actor Todd Duncan, who sang it in the movie, did he have a hit with it? Do you know? Um, that's a real easy question to answer because he didn't even have a record of it. Huh. So um, he merely sang a version which lasts all of one minute and 15 seconds. <laughs> that, that movie might actually be on YouTube. 
Uh, I mean, it's completely out of copyright. If you want to see what a cheap movie looks like, go to <laughs> just look up Unchained. And Todd Duncan is a, I mean, he alone, he's worth a chapter. And uh, he was a, one of the original, the, one of the first black opera singers. He appeared at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. He was selected by Gershwin to play the part of Porgy and Porgy and Bess. Wow. Um, and he had a really, uh, he was a well-trained operatic singer who taught voice at Howard University in Washington, D.C. for more than half a century. Fascinating guy. And, you know, he's like, if the name means anything to your listeners, he was a, a figure very similar to Paul Robeson. Yeah. You know, simultaneously a, 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 a guy gifted with a wonderful voice, but also a civil rights pioneer, a human rights pioneer. Oh, my love, my darling, I've hungered for your touch alone, lonely time. I need to wrap up with one final question, and uh, you may just decide not to answer it. Chapter 31 brings it up. I do a lot of lectures around here in Louisiana, and one of the ones I'm generally known for, it's on TV and all that, is what was the first rock and roll record? You say it can't be nailed down. Well, I sure as God exists tried. What do you think is the first rock and roll record? Well, I can only tell you the very unpopular position I took in that chapter. Okay. And believe me, this I, I've never met anyone yet who's come over to me, shaken my hand and said, boy, do I, that's absolutely true. <laughs> what I believe is it's a non-question. We, we have the, I mean, th think of what it would mean to say there is a first rock and roll record. It would mean that out of whole cloth, somebody walked into a studio and recorded whatever, you know, blue suede shoes or Tutti Frutti or Long Tall Sally, and people said, wow, what is that? And somebody said, that's rock and roll, and we just heard the first rock and roll record. That's nonsense. It's absolute rubbish. Rock and roll, like any, really any form, evolves slowly, over time. Little bits are added to the mix. Other things are taken out. And finally, on one particular day, you might listen to something like Blue Suede Shoes or like... Uh, Jackie Brenston's record of Rocket 88, which was recorded, I think, in 1951 or two, you might listen to that and say, hmm, you know, that doesn't exactly sound like what was recorded right before it. And I can see a connection between it 
and the stuff that's about to be recorded that eventually we will call rock and roll. So that's like a transitional record. And that kind of question I find interesting. But to literally hold up a record and say, here it is, kids, this is it, number one, first rock and roll record. <laughs> nah, I don't believe it. Uh, and I gotta leave it at that. Simple time is on our uh, is not on our side. Hank Davis, the author of Ducktales, Drive-Ins, and Broken Hearts: An Unsweetened Look at Fifties Music. Hank, it's it's a brilliant little book, and it's in nice edible chunks. Is it available at fine booksellers everywhere? Everywhere in the world. Absolutely. Hey, I I can't tell you. How happy I am! This was this was a dramatically enjoyable interview, and I hope you had a good time as well. I had a wonderful time talking to you, Jill. Thank you. You bet. Thank you for speaking with us, Hank. Damn, damn.